So now we're getting into uh, some of the nuts and bolts of um, uh, different methods and approaches, uh, responses uh, to to sort of manage and and control, if you will, the uh, arising of the asavas. Uh, and uh, the Buddha, uh, as I mentioned earlier, has uh, uh, outlines five methods. I'm going to do two tonight, two tomorrow night, and then I'll probably uh, offer some short reflections on the fifth one uh, tomorrow morning at the early morning sit. I can't do a full talk on it. There's just not time for all of it. So, um, But tonight I want to talk about restraining and using. Uh, and this is very interesting. Uh, you have the copy of the sutta in your source book, and I hope you'll refer to it. But I'll, I'll bring it in each time we talk about these. Uh, so, as described in the sutta, um, restraining refers to the restraint of the senses. And here's how he puts it: He says, Reflect, "Reflecting wisely, one abides with the eye faculty restrained." with the ear faculty, the nose faculty, the tongue faculty, the body faculty, the mind faculty restrained. And while taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who dwells unrestrained, there are no taints, no vexation or fever in one who abides with the faculties restrained. I love that. One who dwells unrestrained knows nothing but vexation. (laughs) Sounds very familiar. (laughs) I'm vexed. (laughs) So, I mean, this is essentially annoyance, irritation, bother, you know, being being irritated. And, and, uh, you know, what he's pointing to here is uh, kind of the unguarded grabbing hold of whatever arises in the mind and uh, it comes out into the sense doors uh, and um, the fact that this gives rise to these states. You know, that, that, uh, unrestrained, it's nothing. Uh, you know, uh, or unrestrained, that this is, this is the, the, the path that it takes. Restrained, nothing happens. You know, one is able to just hold what arises at the sense doors and keep the attention right there. So right here, I, I think we have to sort of reorient our thinking a bit because uh, our, our cultural standards and our cultural conditioning are, are such that um, really for us, at least for most of us until we come to the Buddhist t- teachings, the, the idea of, of freedom means that um, there's an ease of movement. One, is, one can live unrestrained. One can do whatever one wants. One can go wherever one wants. This kind of thing. So the, the ability to pursue whatever we want. And I think we need to have a healthy respect for that right out of the gate. <laughs> this is deeply um, embedded in our own conditioning. You know, so this, this idea of restraint might not sound very attractive at first. <laughs> it's, it's, not, uh, it's not our standard. And then you add to that, that, um, that uh, the karmic conditioning, the stuff that we were looking at today in class uh, of how the, the impulses to, to follow uh, pleasure, pain, and neither with wanting and not wanting and checking out, uh, that those impulses are very strong. And, and so we're up against that too. Uh, but what the Buddha is saying here very clearly is, is that uh, being free to follow those impulses is really being at the mercy of those impulses. You know, they're, they're highly, highly conditioned. You know, it's almost like you don't get a say, you know, because the force of it is so great. Uh, we're just kind of driven, uh, bound by that, and, and really, in a way, not free at all. So we have to sort of reorient our, um, our thinking about what we call freedom, what we understand as freedom. 
And I remember one of the monks uh, years ago um, in a talk, uh, something he said just made such an impression on me. I think about it a lot and talk about it a lot. He said that um, he was inviting us to contemplate the fact that it's actually possible to live our entire lives from the time that we're born until the time that we die, just following old patterns. Just having things like living literally uh, completely uh, in a compulsive mode, out of the compulsion of following our old karmic patterns. You know, I don't know what that does to you, but when I heard that, it was like it was like this thud. You know, that that's the possibility, and it's not unfamiliar <laughs> to to me. You know, to to see uh, we certainly all drop into periods where that's the way uh, that's the seem, seems to be the way that it goes. And I suppose if our patterns were all skillful or, or healthy, you know, that would be fine on one level. But on another level, it's not still not fine because you're not seeing it. You're not seeing how it's happening, uh, and, and and so much. But so much of what comes up in the mind is uh, our suffering constitutes our suffering, and that's what we're following blindly. You know, not really seeing, not really having a say. Uh, you know, liberation involves getting a wedge in there and having a say. It, it involves discernment. It, you know, it involves uh, uh, getting some, uh, having some choice in this. And restraint is a key player here. You know, especially early on, because you can't. You use restraint just to be able to see the impulses. Uh, if you, if we're following them, we can't see them. So in, in the Sutta Nipata, there's this very famous verse that you may have heard uh, many times. And he, uh, the Buddha is saying, Those who leave one thing to take up another and follow attachment never relinquish desire. Uh, they are like monkeys who let go of one branch only to grasp another, only to let it go in turn. You know, this is this mad monkey image, the wild monkeys swinging through the trees, just... Uh, always grasping something, that kind of thing. And, and uh, you know, what, what he's pointing to is how each moment of grasping conditions the next moment, conditions the next, conditions the next, and you get this, you know, snowball rolling down a hill effect, you know, where you can, you, you can hardly um, resist uh, and, and certainly hardly stop uh, that, that impulse. You know, and for most of us, I, w- I would guess, this is one of the first stories you hear on retreat. You know, it's one of the first things that you might hear in a, in a Dhamma talk. And, and I can remember hearing it and, th- and thinking, ha, 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 stupid monkeys, you know. But, but, then, <laughs> but then you sit and you meditate, you know, and you go, yeah, that's me. I know that. I know what they're doing. I'm doing it all the time, you know. And, and so it's not just pleasant things that we're grasping, is it? You know, it's a, there's a lot of unpleasant stuff. The aversive mind will fixate on things. And it, it, it's the same kind of attachment. You'd think that wouldn't happen, you know, because who wants to grab hold of something unpleasant? But the mind is grabbing hold to try to get rid of it. It doesn't see its own delusion. You know, how, how, you, know you only have to scratch the surface of that a little bit to see how ridiculous that is. But that's what it does. It fixates on difficult things and unpleasant things as well. And, um, you know, you, you can watch this throughout the course of any day. I remember I was telling somebody last month at the Forest Refuge, uh, talking to a gal in an interview, and, um, 
I was telling her a story about something that happened on my first three-month meditation retreat. And, you know, I went right into a three-month retreat. I think I did one ten-day and then went into a three-month, you know. <laughs> I was pretty green, you know, to, to say the least. And um, uh, I can remember I had, uh, it was about just a few days into the retreat, I was doing walking meditation out in front of IMS on the little uh, uh, sidewalk there. And this taxi cab drove up, and uh, with a, obviously a late arrival. And uh, the, the, um, so I'm walking down the lane, and I'm, you know, the, this taxi cab is right in my line of vision. And the first thing I saw coming out of that taxi cab was this leg with this really fancy high-heeled shoe on, you know? <laughs> and then this woman emerged, and she had this very colorful and brilliant poncho on. And um, I can remember my, my mind just going, it, it just, uh, who knows what, where this was all coming from. As I said, I was very green and n- not at all practicing sense restraint, <laughs> you know. But, but I got a bug up my butt about this, you know. And, and I decided that this person was dressed wholly inappropriately for coming to a meditation <laughs> retreat, you know. And, and spent um, a lot of that retreat just looking for her so I could criticize her. <laughs> you know? Have you, have you, you know this one? It's, it's, uh, it, it's the same thing that we're doing with thoughts and ideas, memories, vendettas, all kinds of things will, will come into the mind, or a song, a jingle, something like this. And, and the, the mind uh, uh, unwittingly, literally unwittingly, um, it, it just uh, glom, will pounce and ruminate and just keep reviewing and reviewing and reviewing. And this is, this, it's like a, 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 there's something unpleasant, and it's not enough that it was unpleasant the first time it happened. <laughs> the mind, it's like it's, it's still trying to deal with it. So it keeps bringing it up and trying to make it not be unpleasant. I mean, that's what it's doing, you know, over and over and over again. And, and you know, some of you are talking about, like, difficult memories, difficult relationships, things like this, that uh, the, the mind is, is incessantly trying to cope. It's one thing if it's something that happened last week. You know, but you, what? You, you see things that happened 30 years ago, you know? Mm-hmm. And the mind is still trying to sort it out, trying to figure it out. Or maybe for some of us only 10 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> But this is the, what we're seeing is the, the, the glue that keeps this going is what the Buddha is calling unwise attention. You know, the, the, there is the pouncing, the attending to things that are of no consequence, or the attending to things so as to give rise to the asavas, to give rise to the taints, one after the other. And so the Buddha is inviting contemplation on this in, in this sutta, you know, and, and what he's pointing to here is what we were talking about in class today, the, the, the importance of uh, this teaching on the six sense spaces and their objects, that we're, uh, uh, we begin to become aware of the, the sense organ, the object of the sense, and the fetter that arises in relation to these two. And, uh, you know, there's the eye that sees, the object that it sees, and the grasping. Uh, And the Buddha says that uh, we have to know 
the activity of all three of these. We have to, we have to be able to see the activity of all of these. Uh, without that, it's impossible to overcome suffering. Mm-hmm. That it's all right, right in there. You know, there's a lot uh, to see. So, you know, I don't know about you, but until I meditated, uh, I, I didn't see that. You know, I, I couldn't, or, or until I heard the teachings, maybe more appropriately, that somebody, it's almost like somebody has to point that out. There are three things going on here, you know, and, and you need to break it apart and see what's happening. I, I wouldn't have even known to look, let alone to see it in that way. It's all just a big jumble, isn't it? And so it's a very important teaching uh, to uh, contemplate that and to look for it in our experience. Uh, If we want to overcome these entrenched patterns, this has to be seen. And uh, Ajahn Chah noted that this particular teaching, this teaching on the sense uh, organs, their objects, and the fetter that arises in relation to them, was the, uh, the key teaching that led to his own liberation. And that gets my attention. You know, this is an, an arahant, somebody who has liberated their mind. And he says that working with this, in particular, was what, uh, what did it for him. And, uh, you know, so he, he often talks about it. And he, we can uh, surmise that um, a lot of what he's talking about is coming from his own experience and practice. That, that uh, you know, a very skilled <coughs> practitioner. And one of the things that he's often quoted as saying, and you may have heard this one before too, that um, he, he says, uh, you know, when there's a, perhaps there's an annoying sound, you know, uh, and maybe it's a barking dog or something like that, that uh, that sound doesn't bother you. You bother it. Mm. He puts it that way. It, it, doesn't, it doesn't disturb you. You disturb it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of clever play of words and an interesting way of saying uh, what I think he's getting, what he's obviously getting at in this, is that it's not, um, it's not the sound. It's not the ear. Uh, it's the, the way that one is relating to that sound. It's, a, it's, a, it's all in the, um, the way that one is relating. And this has to be seen, you know, because clearly, uh, maybe there's some exceptions to this. Maybe if sounds go beyond the decibel level of what is normal for uh, a, a human ear, that might be different. But when we're talking about that's just sound, well, what if it's a thought? You know, if it's the same is true. The thought arises in the mind, and you grab it. You know, something happens. Otherwise, that would be free to move through. The sound, even if it's a repeated barking dog, it would be free to move through. And there's been some interesting tests on this, or uh, research on this, where uh, meditators, uh, for example, have been tested before and after a three-month retreat, where uh, at the beginning of the three-month retreat, if the bell rings, um, they, they, they hear it, but then over the course of time, if they aren't attending, uh, it, it just, the mind doesn't show signs of reacting. It becomes, you know, they just start to ignore it. But um, practitioners who are really working, every single time that bell 
comes, uh, it, it sounds, uh, there's a, a, a reaction in the brain. It's hearing every moment anew, every moment just receiving what happens, letting it rise and letting it pass away. It's fascinating stuff. Just to get the mind so present that um, one is just noticing. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. Seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking, feeling. It's just a, a constant parade, uh, able to see that bombardment at the sense doors and not be perturbed by it. Just letting it, letting it happen. So we, we've all heard that kind of teaching and um, I mean, I like the way he puts it. Uh, as I said, it's kind of cute and clever and, and um, an interesting one to, to reflect upon. But I think the key question here, as practitioners, is um, have we seen it? Do we know what he's talking about? Have we seen it in our own experience? You know, when, when we're suffering, when we're caught up, uh, have we taken the time to investigate and, and let our investigation take us to insight, to this kind of insight? So, for example, if you're, if you're pouncing on sounds, you know, uh, or uh, actions, or something like this. You know, the, uh, w- does one ask oneself, where's the suffering? Is it in the sound? Is it in the ear? Or is it in the way that you're uh, picking up on it? Or if you're bothered by thoughts, where's the suffering? Is it in the mind? Is it in the painful memory or the thought that arises? Or is it in the, the fact that we <clears throat> grab it and breathe it back into life <laughs> and, and feel the pain of that memory all over again and, and uh, start to relive it? This is, these are all rhetorical questions and practice questions, you know. Where is it? This has to be seen, asked, investigated in this way over and over and over again so that the mind can begin to see how things are really playing out. So the the, the Buddha is telling us in in no uncertain terms that the the problem doesn't lie in alluring or unattractive objects. You know, we can make it the objects if we want, but it's not in any of that. It's not in the sights and sounds, it's not even in our thoughts. and it, and it doesn't lie in our capacity to see, hear, smell, taste, touch, think, feel. You know, that's, that's not where it is either. So it's not the world, it's not our senses. But it's in, um, all in the grasping. And, and it, as I said, a key player in our capacity to see that for ourselves is restraint. Because if we're always going with the grasping, if we're always picking up what comes in to the, our experience through the sense doors, then you, you can't see it. You can't see the grasping. We just go with it. And so the, the restraint is a, is a, a way to um, hold back so you can feel it, you know. And it, it feels like, you know, just this uh, incredible movement of the mind where you're about to grab. You know, one time I, on one of my early retreats, I, I was watching this uh, very closely, or, or doing the mental noting very closely, and my, my um, notes were getting very precise, you know, seeing, 
thinking, planning, hearing, you know. And, and then I could feel this um, impulse to grab something, just coming up very viscerally. It's like the whole system started to contract. I felt a, a slight feeling of nausea. And, and it was like, and my note was, about to suffer. <laughs> it was really good, you know. It, didn't do it, but about to, about to suffer. So you know, it, it, this is the this is the practice here. And and granted, un, until the uh, the mind settles uh, significantly both in any given retreat or a period of practice like this, in any given sitting, or over the months and years of practice where we really start to enjoy a continuous experience of having a settled mind. Um, but until that begins to happen, we, we don't see the grasping. Uh, but it becomes easier and easier as time goes by and as we learn both to settle and, and just to take an interest in um, the experience that we're talking about, in what's going on, uh, and uh, being very precise in our observing. So you get very sensitized to uh, that feeling of about to pick something up. And, and for me, I think the, the, the key place where one wants to put one's attention is right in that place that we were looking at today where the feeling, tone, it, it precipitates uh, the movement of the mind to, to grasp. You, you want to be right there. <laughs> that is where all the action is. That's where it's happening. That's where the, the turn towards or the holding firm, uh, towards suffering or holding firm in just what's happening uh, is going to be taking place. So just to try to, uh, try to exercise some restraint there initially, or after, over time, you, you don't even need to. <laughs> the mind begins to recede quite naturally and organically because it, it, it starts to feel the harm of the grabbing. But at least initially, just to, to exercise the, some restraint there. And not because the impulse is bad, not because it's wrong, or there's something wrong with us because we're wanting to grasp something, you know, but, but it, because we're about to suffer. We're about to go into that uh, state, into those areas of craving, becoming an ignorance. And so, the, the, you know, understanding restraint is very important because it's, it's a, it makes it possible to see to see clearly, to see what's happening here. And we want to see it over and over and over again. <clears throat> so and what, what you experience then is the great, great relief of, of not having to follow every conditioned response, <laughs> every karmic pattern. You know, And we all know our patterns. I mean, if we went around the room, I'm sure we could all say, these are the places where I, I go blindsided, you know. But we, we, we can break that. We can uh, enjoy the relief of not following every conditioned pattern, not having to think every thought. I mean, that boggles the mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, just, just, just to be able to see 
thought uh, and the grasping nature of some of it and, and not have to go there. Uh, and, and, the, and the key one for, for myself is not having to grab everything I find attractive <laughs> or unattractive. You know? what? Now that's freedom. <laughs> that's, real, that's liberation. <clears throat> So just, just one more thought on this, and, and, and this is a, a kind of a take care uh, thought. Um, intellectually, we can understand what the Buddha is pointing to here, and, and we can apply ourselves in practice. But when, um, when we're confronted with the things that we find attractive or unattractive, you know, each of us, again, has our own a uh, little litany or list here. When we're confronted with those, whether, whether it's like foods or uh, other human beings or mind states, uh, problematic relationships at work, uh, problematic relationships uh, at home, any of these kinds of things, um, the pull can be so great <laughs> that, that it's very hard to keep our footing in relation to it. And personally, I think we, we have to know that and give it its due. Um, really give uh, the force of karmic patterns uh, their due. You know, one of the monks one time said, you know, sometimes even mindfulness is no match. <laughs> you know, you can be sitting there and watching and uh, whether, it's, whether you call it attention or mindfulness, like those discernments we were making today, that doesn't matter. But you, you, can, you can watch yourself do something you don't want to do, can't you? Or you, you can watch yourself not do something you do want to do. <laughs> and, and, and this is a really frustrating part of practice, a frustrating part of life. We all have the, the wish or the hope or the, the desire to, to clean up our act. But we really, really have to have a very healthy respect for the force of patterns to the contrary. And, and just make peace with it, you know? I mean, I find this, uh, 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 this, this issue in particular, is just, um, it just makes you softer. <laughs> it makes you more humble through the years, you know? Uh, I, I, my, even my wish for liberation sometimes is no match for a pattern, in the moment. Ultimately it will be, but in, in the moment, just to, to know that and, and allow for that. <laughs> Ajahn Shah says that, that, that the pull of the uh, five physical senses is bad enough, <laughs> but the lure of the mind is even greater. Yeah. And, and he said, um, just as we train the body, we have to train the mind. But we do it differently. He says that when you train the body, you move it around. <laughs> when, you, when you train the mind, you bring it to a halt. That's the, that's the, the, the movement here. Uh, and and uh, in that moment, if we can manage that, then at least for the moment, we're free of the pattern. Even if in the very next moment you go, you go right back into it, uh, that moment of freedom from the pattern counts for a whole lot in Buddhist practice. 
you, you've, you've disrupted the flow. <laughs> it, 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 no, it, 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 just even once, it doesn't have the power that it had before. Be, and largely because you are seeing, we're seeing that we don't have to go with it. <laughs> it's like, whoa, until that moment, you don't know it. You don't know that you don't have to go with it. And, and right in there, uh, the, the residue of the impulse to grasp or the grasping itself, if that's just happened, that's all kind of there and it's making an impression on the mind. And it's painful. And so that, that moment of uh, pain from being caught and out of control and at the mercy of things, uh, that makes an impression over time. You know, I, w- I would say for myself, more than anything else, in, in terms of things that I've seen change, behaviors that I've seen change through the years, uh, it, it's feeling the pain of, ha- of being caught in them. It's not because I smacked myself around enough, you know, which was the old way, you know, cracking the whip and making myself do it, you know. No. I mean, sometimes that's appropriate, but not, not, not as a standard, right? Not as the, the main practice. So this is sense restraint. And just to understand it, contemplate it, give some thought to what he's saying here. Read the, the, that... Uh, part of the sutta again and, and, and uh, look for it and practice, work with it in practice. And so this um, next one, uh, using, is very interesting. Um, what the Buddha uh, is calling using is wise use of the requisites of life. And um, it never occurred to me until I went to the monastery and uh, you um, become familiar with the uh, monks and nuns' uh, care and concern for what they call the requisites of life. Uh, and uh, they, these are food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And it never occurred to me that, that, that basically what the Buddha is saying here is that, you know, uh, what, what does it take to survive as a human being? What do you need? What, what do you need? You know, and it just it basically comes down to that food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And so this section of the sutta, he's, he's offering, and this is specifically for the monks and nuns, I want to say that out front, but he's offering wise reflections for the use of, of uh, ro- the robes, clothing, food, uh, the lodging, and the medicine. And so it is specifically for, for them, but I like to reflect on it. It's one of the, the contemplations we do a lot at the monasteries, and um, uh, even as householders, there's a lot in here for us. Uh, and, and so I encourage um, reflection on this. But, but here's what he says. And this is a chant. This is actually a chant that's done quite regularly at the monasteries. Wisely reflecting, one uses the robes only to ward off cold, to ward off heat, to ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, burning and creeping things, (laughs) only for the sake of modesty. Wisely reflecting, one uses the food, not for fun, not for pleasure, not for fattening, not for beautification, but for the maintenance and nourishment of the body, for keeping it healthy, for helping with the holy life. 
thinking thus, I will allay hunger without overeating, so that I may continue to live blamelessly and at ease. Wisely reflecting, one uses the lodging, only to ward off cold, to ward off heat, to ward off the touch of flies, mosquitoes, wind, burning and creeping things, only to remove the danger from weather and for living in seclusion. Wisely reflecting, one uses supports for the sick and medicinal requisites, only to ward off painful feelings that have arisen and for the maximum freedom from disease. And then he says, while taints, vexation, and fever might arise in one who does not use the requisites thus, there are no taints, vexation, or fever in one who uses them thus. So, you know, in order not to be vexed, <laughs> or not to be uh, caught in grasping, um, he's contemplating, he's encouraging a contemplation, a wise reflection in this way. So again, this is offered for the monks and nuns, but I think there's a lot in here for us as, hel- as householders. And certainly, um, you know, among Buddhist practitioners in the, in the circles that uh, we live in, uh, among our friends, that the, the conversations often turn to the proper use of these things, don't they? You know, that, that sense of uh, how much is enough, how much is too much. You're just taking care with uh, the, the, the quantity and the, the kinds of objects that we buy in this re- regard. And they're very good discussions to have. You know, very, very helpful, very supportive. To keep on the front burner that uh, one is, is not um, sort of barreling over into greedy and obsessive relationships with things that are really just basic requisites. <laughs> you know, just, it, it, it can be all be kept very simple if we wanted to, and that simplicity um, affords a, a, a greater sense of ease uh, with it and with life. And so, so it's not that we want to measure what we think is right against what we think is wrong, which is often how this can get heard. You know, there, it's, not, it's not about right and wrong in, in any uh, sense of the word. Uh, there's no right amount, there's no right things, there's no, you know, we're not saying you can't have a house full of stuff, you know. It, it's not not about that. It, it's really just that we want to be vigilant um, around um, these requisites to offset the arising of craving, becoming, and ignorance. That's all. You know, it's in that context that he's talking about this. So see what it means uh, for you, you know, with, with a couple of things that come to mind for me, just with, with, with clothing, for example. Our, our um, level of renunciation is not that of the monks and nuns. I mean, they have two sets of robes, you know. We have more, we, we have more than two outfits, right? <laughs> it's, not, it's not that level that we're ta- po- pointing to here. But just to keep things in perspective, it, it's easy to lose touch with the purpose of clothing as um, he, he lays it out here, as protection, as modesty, as uh, keep, keeping us uh, warm and things like this. And it's easy to have uh, excessive amounts, more than, more than what we need. And, and we learn a lot about this, I think, by coming to places like this and coming, going to IMS, 
going on retreat uh, uh, and uh, having the experience of, of living with uh, a little bit, you know, living with a suitcase full <laughs> or whatever uh, of clothing. I know that the first time I went to the monastery, um, some 25 years ago, I, I, you should have seen me walking through Heathrow, you know, I, I had like two massive suitcases. I, I just thought I was going to need a lot of outfits, you know. <laughs> you want to look your very best <laughs> in and around the grounds, you know. <laughs> it was amazing. But then, you know, it was a great contemplation for me over the years, you know. I mean, now I can go for three months with an overnight bag, you know. Because basically, you see, you got, the, you got what you have on, you got what's soaking to be washed, and, and you got a backup. You know, that, that's basically all you need when you're there. And, and certainly I'm not suggesting that one wants to live like that all the time, but just putting yourself in that environment, like we do coming here, for a little bit, it adjusts things, doesn't it? It just kind of gets things in, in perspective. Uh, and, and to notice that. You know, at the, at the end of um, uh, my first three-month retreat, I'll never forget this one woman where you have the little closing circle and everybody shares their experience. And this, this one woman said, uh, um, she said, I didn't know I could live with so little. I didn't know that about myself. And she was obviously very happy <laughs> at, at knowing that this is a new piece of information. And it was bringing her a, a lot of peace. Yeah, just a simple thing like that. So it's good to experiment with this. You know, we don't we don't need a lot. Wants are something else, aren't they? And this is this is pointing to to basic needs, and it's a good and and wise reflection. And when it comes to food, we can easily lose touch uh, with the purpose of, of food as nourishment. You know, I, th- I think most of us will admit at one point or another struggling with this, and maybe we still do. You know, but w- what happens is it gets, it's so fascinating to watch. You know, I certainly see this in myself. I've certainly put on a few extra pounds in the, the last uh, 10 or 15 years, just really, uh, and noticing now, just kind of coming out the other side of it, beginning to notice how... Uh, the, the mind just became preoccupied with the sense of taste. And, and so that, that taste was the dominant reason for food. You know, not nourishment, not uh, what the body actually needs. It's just an attachment to taste. And, and, and it's wonderful. I mean, come on, this is some of the great stuff of being a human being, you know, being, um, uh, 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 being able to enjoy delicious foods. And, and this one in particular, I mean, can make lay people just kind of contract a little bit if we start talking about pulling in the reins a little bit or using sense restraint around food. You know, who wants to do that? But um, it, because it's one of the great pleasures of our lives and, and it's very much involved in uh, our social lives and, and things like this. And, uh, but I don't think the Buddha isn't even remotely suggesting that we stop enjoying it or change our social lives to, to eliminate this in any way. Or certainly not suggesting that you only eat bland foods, you know, <laughs> or you never go out to lunch, you know. <laughs> this is not what's being, being said here. But just uh, tempering things, you know, with the proper measure 
and the proper kinds of things. And, and as I said, I think we probably all stand to learn some things here. I think it was interesting in the reflection that the Buddha offers is that, uh, he, you know, he says that the food is not for, not for fattening. And um, I had to look that up. I said, what, what's he getting at here? Who, who eats to get fat, you know? But apparently at the time of the Buddha, uh, that was a sign of great wealth and beauty to be uh, plump, you know? <laughs> and so uh, part of the reflection is not to do it for that reason. <laughs> not to do it for cosmetic purposes, if you will. And so, obviously, I mean, you get the gist. You know, when it comes to shelter, we lose touch with the purpose of shelter for protection and for having a place to meditate, you know. Or we lose, with medicine, we lose touch with the purpose of it to, to ward off disease. You can use it excessively. You can use it cosmetically. So this one's an interesting one too. I wanna, I, as, I, as you may know, I spend a lot of time um, at uh, a number of the monasteries in the lineage of Ajahn Chah, and um, one of the, the great supports of monastic life is that um, the basic requisites are provided, so that you can practice, uh, so that you can uh, that that's t- uh, uh, taken off the ta- table, if you will. And, um, you know, we all know how much time and energy we spend just doing what you need to do to buy food, prepare a meal, uh, shop for clothing, have health insurance, all, all of this. You know, this, uh, it's a, it, it uses a tremendous amount of energy in our life and as lay people. Anyway, I was talking to one of the monks, a, a good friend of mine, who's a, an um, Englishman and uh, comes from a working-class English um, uh, background. And um, he said that on, on the day of his ordination, he didn't even really realize, he didn't really, hadn't thought it through, but part of the ceremony, obvi- obviously, mm. is you're given robes, you're given a bowl, you're given uh, your hut, and um, you're uh, given access to the uh, medicines that are provided, you know, for uh, the monks and the nuns. And, and he said uh, when he was ordained, he actually wept when he realized that, that these would all be provided for him so that he could practice. And it's a big part of, uh, of monastic life, and, and this is why you hear such emphasis on the right use and the care of these basic requisites for them. And if there's a lot of rules in the vinya around this um, to, to constantly um, care for them in the proper way and to constantly reflect upon them. But uh, the reason, as he, he was telling me, is that um, certainly, um, just generally, naturally, you want to take care, but um, one constantly is reflecting with great gratitude. <laughs> for um, this kind of support uh, to be able to, to practice. Um, I mean, they're kind of the professionals, you know, they practice uh, all the time. And uh, how, how they often say how happy they are that they live at a time and in a society where uh, people mm-hmm. value what they're doing enough to um, support it. And 
Uh, the Buddha himself said, or it's implied in some of the things he said before he died, that um, this is a sign of a healthy society. That uh, the people within that society recognize how important it is to have members in that society devote themselves to spiritual practice. It's not for everybody. Not everybody doesn't want to do this. You know, it's, it's not like we should all be doing it. But that um, the, the society as a whole values it and that individuals within that uh, will come forward and support it. And in fact, so much so that the Buddha said he wouldn't die. Uh, he has a conversation with Mara, if you read the Parinibbana Sutta. Um, and he, w- he wouldn't die until he felt confident that um, the relationships between lay and monastic were um, mature and solid, such that they, he, he felt uh, comfortable that um, the, the, the Dhamma would carry on because uh, there were people who were willing to support and people who were willing to take on the renunciant life. I thought that's fascinating to me. <laughs> yeah. So there's a, that, that's some of why there's such emphasis on this uh, for, the, for the monastics. And in the West, what we've done is extended that. You, I'm sure you've heard that. To include a, a more secular world where we're supporting places like this and supporting uh, lay Dhamma teachers and all but the, uh, the sentiment is the same, that this is uh, valued, this is important in our culture. And, um, it, and sometimes I think we, we can actually be giving in support of all of this and not notice, <laughs> not really take in that that's coming from this heart, that this heart has enough sense to, to value. Um, spiritual practice in this way. So it's kind of an encouragement to, to notice that and to, to take that in if indeed uh, you support places like this or the monks or the nuns. So short of taking robes ourselves and uh, then our effort as uh, lay people is to, to find a way to temper our use of the four requisites in our lives. Uh, and, and so just... Uh, I guess by way of encouragement, especially while you're here, but certainly after you leave, to you know, it's a little easier sometimes when we're here because it's simpler. <laughs> the way that we're living is a lot simpler, and just to take advantage of this uh, opportunity, because it's been my experience through the years to just notice that it's it is absolutely not uncommon at all that people come away from weeks like this or time at IMS or the Forest Refuge and. Um, just with a, a much greater sense and direct experience of the value of sense restraint. <laughs> just the importance of sense restraint in this regard. And, um, and also come away with a sense of having um, uh, the basic requisites of life in more perspective. Simple food, simple clothes, you know. Uh, an aspirin in the cupboard if you need it, you know, just basic, uh, simple stuff. And how much, um, I, and, and the real point in this is not in and of itself, but the effect it's having on the mind. Just how much easier it is to uh, keep the mind balanced when uh, we're um, holding the environment that we're in with it in, in a simpler way. Yeah? 
So restraining and using. <laughs> I hope some of this is helpful. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.